What happens when a biology professor, a single mom, and an undercover FBI agent find themselves at the crossroads of the opioid crisis as Big Pharma brings a new product to the market and drug trafficking runs rampant? Set against the backdrop of the opioid epidemic in the United States and Canada, three characters' stories are depicted in a fictional film released in 2021 called Crisis. In this episode, we will use the movie as a scaffold to discuss the drivers of the opioid epidemic in North America and the broader public health concerns for our society. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. You're listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for all things public health and global health. From the sustainable development goals to the social determinants of health, as well as interesting dialogues about the diverse career opportunities that exist in these fields. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so other people like you can benefit from our content. Welcome to Rewind, a new limited series brought to you by Public Health Insight, where we explore the public health connections in some of our favorite TV shows, movies, music, books, other non-traditional health media, and pop culture. If there's a movie out there that you'd like us to review, feel free to send us your suggestions by email or through social media. My name is Purva, and I will be your host for this episode, along with my fellow co-hosts, Gordon and Bindra. In this episode, we'll be taking a closer look at a movie released in 2021 called Crisis. But before we get into it, let's rewind. Let's do a high-level summary of the movie. So we've got a continuously switching point of view between three different characters in this film. We've got Dr. Tyrone Brower, played by Gary Oldman, Jake Kelly, played by Army Hammer, and Claire Ryman, played by Evangeline Lilly. Dr. Tyrone Brower is shown struggling in both a legal and academic environment against a large pharma company that is trying to bring to market what they think is a non-addictive opioid. Dr. Brower does contract research for them and finds that their new drug, Clarilon, is in fact incredibly addictive and has fatal outcomes after 10 days. He finds himself in a really difficult position when he needs to make his research public despite the big pharma company manipulating him into not doing so. Our second character, Jake Kelly, is an FBI agent. He works undercover in the opioid drug market, where he's attempted to take out a major drug syndicate that runs across the border between Canada, specifically Quebec, and the United States. Lastly, we have Claire Ryman, a mother recovering from an oxycodone addiction whose son's mysterious and unexplainable death leads her down a dangerous path directly to the drug syndicate that Jake himself is trying to destroy. So one of the first themes that I kind of saw coming into this movie and really uh, plays a big role with Dr. Brower's storyline is the history and the continuous role of big pharma and, you know, the role that they play in the overall opioid epidemic. Did you guys have any specific thoughts about, you know, the idea of big pharma and Dr. Brower having to tackle that entire situation? Yeah. So first of all, I think Clarilon, the drug depicted in the movie, is a fictitious drug used to for storytelling purposes. And oxycodone, which happens to be the real drug, which gave birth to the pandemic that we, or the epidemic that we see today. So yeah, there are some similarities there about how big pharma, big tobacco, 
have leveraged governments in the past and kind of slipped through regulations. And this movie tells a story about how powerful those entities are and how political greed and corporate greed can often trump science. Yeah, um, I know Dr. Brower in the movie also mentions something along the line how Clarilon could be the next tobacco or oxycodone. Um, both were major major public health crises. Um, tobacco was a big one, oxycodone obviously a current one. Um, and there's truth to that statement, right? That like, big pharma has played such a big role in a lot of these addictive substances um, and then the opioid crisis as well, especially in North America. We've seen that the last few years with those legal cases with Johnson & Johnson. Um, Purdue Pharma was one that people have already taken action against. So there's a lot of truth to that. Um, do you think like lawsuits and cases make much of a difference if it's already happened with tobacco, now it's happening with oxycodone? Do you think there might be like this next Clarilon where we have to do something like this again? So I do think that it's important to have these lawsuits in place because you have to hold these pharma companies accountable. Big Pharma has played a big role in giving rise to this opioid crisis. But at the same time, I think you also have to take into accountable the FDA themselves. Like I think they are responsible for regulating these pharma companies. And yes, they can get these pharma companies may be able to get a way through like, you know, loopholing through these regulations. But at the same time, I think the FDA needs to have standards in place in terms of what can we do to ensure that like these pharma companies are not slipping through um, and really holding these these corporations accountable and not really um, having everything be done because of profit. Because I think at the end of the day, what these pharma companies are looking for is to make profit. And they're going to find any way to do so, even if these regulations are in place. And so I think that there needs to be more accountability placed on the FDA themselves. I think that's a big role that needs to needs to be played. It's a very complex issue, right? So if you go back even further, funding for research, big pharma plays a huge role in there. So there's an inherent conflict of interest. The FDA itself is also partially funded by big pharma. So there's a conflict of interest there itself. So if you think about big decisions that have to be made on the, the board for the FDA and billions of dollars at stake, and this same pharma company is putting maybe hundreds of millions of dollars into FDA, paying for the salaries of hundreds or thousands of governmental workers, then they have power to influence decisions. So lawsuits themselves are important because at least there are independent agencies or litigators coming in. I know, shout out to, to Rob Balot as far as it goes for environmental health. So we need people like that on the independent side to hold pharma companies accountable when the regulators themselves are not. The other reason it's important is because who pays for the damage to society? So if we don't get money from those big pharma companies, it's taxpayers themselves that are paying for the damage, right? So I think it is important to have those lawsuits and at least get some kind of compensation for society in general to rectify the damages that were caused. Just speaking on that conflict of interest, it's so hard to navigate that because one of the reasons a lot of family doctors and doctors in general started prescribing it so largely was that there was a major, I think, pharmaceutical conference that um, a lot of these large pharma players like Purdue Pharma, they were funding that conference and a lot of the research that was being presented at that conference. So 
they were, you know, saying that it's not addictive. You guys should definitely be giving this to your patients. Um, you know, it'll help with their livelihood. They'll have less pain and this and that. So they really, really sold the idea that it was not addictive. And having that misinformation, um, you know, directly given to the doctors, I don't think many doctors knew that it was incorrect until they saw signs in their patients that this was addictive. It was a tough and having that type of conflict of interest is hard. Like you're going to a conference where these pharmaceuticals are funding a lot of the research. You can't go up to them and be like, this is wrong or I don't think you're right. Um, they're going to kind of sell the idea and the message that they believe is true um, or want to like, you know, make obvious to doctors and pharmaceuticals. So it's tough. Yeah, those those kickbacks are incredibly dangerous. I know, I think part of it too was funded uh, paid paid vacations, all expense trips and stuff like that. So, you know, at the level of research, there's a conflict of interest. And then that down to the level of prescribing, there's a conflict of interest. I don't think I would want my doctor's choice to prescribe me a medication being influenced by how much money yeah. they would make. That seems very yeah. unethical. So I think that's when we talk about the opioid crisis, these are the variety of different levels why it got mm -hmm. to this point in the first mm -hmm. place, right? That also brings to light the importance of the scientific process itself in terms of, you know, getting information out there about what's true and what's credible and what isn't. Um, I know back in the day, like when Purdue Pharma was, you know, making these claims that, okay, oxycodone is not addictive. They published this like note within the New England Journal of Medicine. So it wasn't even an actual study itself. It was just like almost like an editorial. And they were trying to convince people that, okay, it's not an addictive drug. It's completely okay to be prescribing it to patients. And I think when people read it and see that, okay, it's written in this prestigious journal, it's a scientifically published article that may have went through the peer review process, people are going to believe it. So I just think that brings to light like how flawed the peer review process may be. Like these people who may be peer reviewing these scientific articles may have conflicts of interest themselves. They may not be reviewing things properly. And I think that just goes to show that even we, when we're as readers reading this type of information that's out there, we need to be sure that like we're actually taking into consideration if the information is credible, if the study that was done is actually a legitimate study. And if, you know, there was an actual controlled trial behind it if it wasn't just like um, done because of reasons that the study was being given money to to do it and like it wasn't being pursued for profitable reasons versus advancing that scientific knowledge base. Yeah, and you'd think the company that was coming out with Clarilon in the movie would have on paper checkmarked all of the points in having a proper scientific backed research on this drug right they had given the drug to like a couple different scientists to research it and kind of go ahead and see if it's okay however they had told them to only do a seven day trial on the mice however dr brower's lab does a 10 day um, they do 10-day studies. That's their norm. So his students went ahead and did their 10-day study instead of a seven-day one, like the company had asked. And that's how they found out that it was a fatal drug to the, all the mice that were being given Clarilon. And so I think in a way, they did checkmark all the things they needed to do up until then. They had more than one scientist researching this drug, um, which means that each of them may have done a slightly different way of doing the study, which is really good. So they were doing everything right up until then, until Dr. Brower's research showed differently than what they wanted. So when he they, he said, I did a 10-day study, they're like, well, why'd you do that? We asked only for a seven-day study. And then when they said it like that, it made it 
almost suspicious, like, oh, you didn't want people to do more than a seven day study. Why? You know, did you find something and then wanted to make sure that no one did more than that? Because after seven days, it becomes bad. So I think up until then, they were doing good. And then once, you know, the results showed what they didn't want it to show, no one was willing willing to listen to him. So even though he did the whistleblower, um, you know, reporting to the FDA, the FDA didn't even let him speak when it came to the actual case when they, you know, were deciding whether the drug should go ahead or not. So I think you're right, Binder, in the part where the FDA needs to be held accountable too. Like, like in the end, while it's bad to say, like, these are companies, they're their own entity, and they need to be held accountable by the government structures like the FDA. And if the FDA is kind of okay to sway those laws and rules, then what can we do? If you backtrack for a bit, right? So the drug was already in human trials, clinical mm-hmm. trials. I was a little confused why there was still the need to do testing in the animal models at that point. That should be cleared before it even goes to human trial. We're not talking about the COVID-19 vaccine where you have to fast track it. But I guess they were pitching this drug as sort of a life-saving drug for people experiencing, I think they were even selling it for chronic pain, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. right? Which, And we know now that's that's not the best way to go about it. But it's it's... That gave the the urgency to move it forward. And I don't know if there were processes that were skipped to get this to human trials, but it was a little bit strange that they were still doing investigations into the animal model. Also, if that's, let's just accept that as common protocol. Maybe that's what happens. There should also be a process in place preemptively for if you find something disturbing in the model, how do you go about halting or stopping human trials from that point? It shouldn't be like a a decision that a company makes, if you know what I mean. It should be, if this is like a decision algorithm, if you find something in an animal thing, then this happens. It shouldn't be a discretionary thing. And then even thinking of solutions too, there almost needs to be an independent scientific research body set up that a percentage of pharmaceutical revenue goes towards to do research like this. So it's not like if you piss off Northlight, I think the company was called that made Clarilon, then they can yank their whole funding from your whole program and and essentially render it obsolete. It shouldn't be that dependent on one pharmaceutical company. There should be, it's similar to how, if I don't know if you know about pharmaceutical waste disposal, a medication that's brought onto the market they take a, the government takes like a portion of that to fund the disposal of the medication. So it should be something similar where there's just an automatic portion of sales or revenue generated that's taken to fund research into products before they go onto market. So it's just it removes pharmaceutical influence from the process a little bit more. I think something that really struck me in the movie was like just imagine being that scientist. You're kind of at a moral dilemma almost of you know, trying to get this like research going forward, but at the same time, you know that it's not correct and you don't want this drug going onto the market, but you're getting like your entire funding is coming from this pharma company. So I think it's kind of you're grappling with this issue of like, should I be that whistleblower and, you know, call it off or should I do it because this is the only way that like my research is getting funded? I think even being a scientist in that position, I think it's very hard to like kind of decide what to do when you're grappling between both of those issues. Mm-hmm. I think it ended well enough 
for him. And I think it would, maybe that was a Hollywood take. I don't know if it would happen in real life. But he sold his story to the newspaper and it made front page. And he was able to get a job after that quite easily. It seemed he went to Michigan and started lecturing there. But his like head of department got laid off like he lost his job and I think the obviously the university would have had a big hit on reputation which would affect many many people which is like this entire downstream effect it's there's no right or wrong it seems like yeah he stopped like Clarelon still made it to the market people they were still selling it and maybe not everyone would have seen this breaking news story about it so it's you know it's almost like so many people got hurt from reporting it but because the FDA didn't back him up, it wouldn't have been widespread known. Like it was just really in the local newspaper. Mm -hmm. And if you remember too, in their decision, I think what they did say is they would commit $11 million to like ongoing monitoring of the addictive properties of the drug or something like that. You remember? It was like that their way of saying, okay, if you're right, we're at least kind of doing something to put, protect the health of the public. Like a bandaid on the situation. Like, ah, oh, here you go. Make you happy. Yeah. For optics, yeah, but maybe. isn't that? Uh, correct me mm -hmm. if I'm wrong. Is that not part of the process? Isn't there? Isn't there supposed to be continued research after yeah. a drug makes it to the market? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's just that they had to uh, put eleven million dollars from their pool into the FDA doing that, basically. Because I think that's an FDA thing for the ongoing monitoring. I think drug companies do too. Like I think it's called post marketing surveillance or something. Uh, where they kind of monitor the drugs and the effects on the population level. But yeah, it just, I that's why I'm not in research. There's a lot of, <laughs> it's a very difficult Ditto. situation to be in. And his whole career was put in jeopardy because of doing what he thought was yeah. the right thing. And I don't, that's kind of a hard position mm -hmm. to be in. I know there's also, you know, in terms of pharma companies and their continuous actions in or like kind of holding them accountable with you know the money that they're giving and stuff we have you know the current i mentioned this earlier we've got the current cases that have more or less just been very recently been settled earlier just in i think december and january um with uh, johnson and johnson and then the sackler family who were the owners of purdue pharma so they went to court, I think it's been a couple of years now since the case started, but they were being held accountable for the role that they played in the opioid epidemic in North America, not just, in, I think it was, they were holding it in the United States, but really all of North America. And um, just in February, I think it was the drug, like Johnson & Johnson and three other major distributors, they had to do a settlement over the roles that they played. And I uh, they had an announcement that $26 billion were going to flow to nearly every state in the United States from these companies to help repair or create some type of infrastructure for support to the communities that are suffering from the opioid epidemic directly. And then the Sackler family um, that became quite wealthy through Purdue Pharma, um, they're set to pay $6 billion um, for their role in the opioid epidemic under this new case. So Hopefully, they haven't disclosed where this money is going to go directly, but, you know, they've given this money and it kind of really is up to holding accountability to them that they put this money where it needs to go. And it's not just, oh, we're going to give money to these communities and that's kind of it, but there needs to be infrastructure to make sure that money is used well. So, you know what the sad thing about all this is? We, we also have to rely on Big Pharma to help fix the problem, not just from a monetary perspective. So you think of naloxone versus 
uh, opioid overdose. It's, it's it's a pharmaceutical drug that helps do that. Pharmaceutical companies make it. Pharmaceutical companies make money from providing the antidote to the problem. It's sort of a never-ending cycle where the creators of the problem also have to get paid to fix the problem. That being said, I'm hoping there's one or two good big pharmas in there who are who will balance out profit slash greed for the greater societal good out there. More often than not, I'm hoping that there are a few of them out there. Yeah, 100%. And I think a lot of their, you know, hopefully coming up with the pharmaceutical solutions, but maybe even putting money into public health uh, infrastructure like safe injection sites or community campaigns or addiction support. Um, I know safe injection sites were a very um, major hot topic, so to say, at least I think about three years ago when we started putting them around Ontario and Toronto. I know we had one come uh, put in London that, um, you know, I had, luckily I went and actually interviewed the people who run it. And you know, they do a lot of good there. And I think putting money into a more grassroots type of thing in the community where we can support the people that directly suffer from the opioid epidemic is one of the best ways that we can use that money outside of obviously funding pharmaceutical solutions like naloxone kits and stuff like that. Um, You know, public health, I think, is a very important role in facing the opioid epidemic head on. What are some of the maybe you guys have seen other ways that public health can kind of play a role, reducing stigma, stuff like that? Yeah, I think you brought up a really important point of like where the money needs to go, Perva. I don't think it's just enough to like cut off the medical supply because I know in that settlement that Johnson & Johnson had, they were like, we're going to stop producing opioids or like selling opioids. But I don't think that's enough because like if you look at the history of the opioid crisis itself, it started back in the 1990s when you know, it was being overprescribed because of these pharma companies were convincing doctors to overprescribe it. Um, And then they completely cut off the medical supply. But then all of these patients who were addicted to these prescribed opioids went on to use the street drugs and then heroin became a thing. And then that's how, you know, it basically got exaggerated the entire crisis itself. So I don't think it's enough to just say that as a pharma company, I'm going to stop selling opioids. I think like there needs to be more accountability in terms of where the money is going to go for like treatment and recovery and support efforts to actually end the entire epidemic itself. I think more effort needs to be placed on that versus just doing it in silo. I think systems need to work together. And like, obviously, public health plays a huge role in terms of that, in terms of the education piece, in terms of the whole like recovery piece. I think supporting people who have addictions to opioids, I think that's very important to have those treatments and recovery options in place, because there's going to always be people who need help. But it's not just enough to cut off the supply, because then they'll just be going through withdrawal. Bravo. There were a few mistakes made by decision makers, right? The first is maybe a lack of oversight, maybe looking the other way. So you have this drug coming on the market, promote the hell out of it. Whoopsie, that's the first mistake. Second mistake is, oh, it was a mistake. Let's just get rid of all of it and make sure no one can have access to it. Oh, what about the people that are already addicted to opioids? And they don't want to use, but they're going to feel like crap if they don't continue using. So you get this thing called a black market. We haven't talked about it too much yet 
the drug trafficking side of this. That essentially gave birth to the whole underground drug trafficking market where the initial prescribing of the opioids and the subsequent de-prescribing, if you will, created a bit of a supply and demand issue where there was a lot of demand, not any more legal supply. Then the illicit market popped up. And when you start bringing illicit market, you get more issues of crime and international crime, trafficking and violence. And movie also portrayed a lot of that. It's important to know, even from a public health perspective, the unintended consequences. So we might have felt like we were doing the right thing by just let's stop prescribing. But you have to think, okay, what's going to happen? We know we've had examples with alcohol. What happens when you regulate, deregulate, stuff like that always goes towards the black market, which tends to be a little bit more harmful. In terms of public health solutions that you asked, Perva, one of the main public health solutions being used now is safer opioid supply programs. The problem with the illicit drug market, and it was also depicted in the movie, is that you get contamination or mixing with other opioids that may be a little bit more potent, like fentanyl. And the person who is using the supply is often unaware of what the contents are beyond what they were expecting. And that's actually the part uh, that is actually responsible for the greater proportion of overdoses, the fentanyl or other more potent uh, opioids. The Safer Opioid Supply Program allows people to get access to medical grade opioids so that they know exactly what's in there and it reduces the incidence of opioid overdoses. So that's one key public health approach that should be funded. Yeah, no, I completely agree with what you both said. I think when we come back to the movie, we mentioned that there was the underground black market syndicate, which, again, we discussed this earlier. We're not sure how realistic it was in terms of having an undercover cop be so involved in um, the opioid distribution and such. But that's because I don't really know how undercover cop stuff works. But, um, you know, do we have the idea that maybe movies like this that aim to discuss such hard-hitting topics, um, is it important that they also talk at least a little bit about, you know, the major topics like, you know, the safe injection sites or the stigma that's associated with the opioid epidemic? So we've got people who use drugs that depend on them. Otherwise, of course, as Gordon said, they feel absolutely awful. Do you think that these movies should be showing that part of the community aspect or the way that people are affected by all this? You have in the movie just talking about the research and then you've got the mom whose son passed away because he got somehow caught up in this syndicate and then you've got the undercover cop, but it almost felt like they never touched on the actual topic. It felt very surface level. Does that kind of make the issue worse because people focus on parts that don't matter as much because they're not the ones that are most affected by it. Addiction care itself, I think it's very clouded by like stigma and the fact that stigma is honestly the biggest barrier in terms of preventing people who use drugs from getting help. I think that's the main issue that people need to talk about because I think addiction care itself is talked about in silo 
versus like medical care or like actual like healthcare itself. And I think people need to realize that we need to integrate both, bring addiction care into healthcare and don't treat it as a separate issue because of the stigma that's associated with it. I think it's a big thing. And maybe even a solution to that could be like ensuring that addictions care care for people who use drugs is incorporated into like the training of medical professionals. I think maybe that is lacking in or may have been lacking in the past in terms of medical education of health professionals. I think if we start to incorporate that within the way that um, health professionals are being trained, then they're more prone to, okay, let me help people who use drugs. Let me not make an issue of stigma. Because I think if the doctors themselves, it's people who are helping Um, these people who are being affected, if they don't have the stigma, then I think that makes a big difference in terms of how they're being treated. So I think bringing addiction care into actual healthcare is very important when you look at like the issue of stigma. Yeah, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about stigma at the societal level, or lack of understanding of, of how addictions work. So in the movie, if you remember, Jake, the FBI agent had a sister who had an addiction to to opioids. And even his approach of how he handled the situation, zip tying her, I guess a little bootleg detoxing going on in, in the home. And just not understanding that, like I said before, a lot of people who are using opioids in sort of a longer term fashion are doing it because they feel sick if they try to withdraw. They can't function without it rather than I really like this and I'm going to keep doing it. It's out of a need at that point, out of a survival. So there's a lack of understanding in in terms of society of how people are addicted to opioids that kind of drives this as well. Why don't you just stop? You know, I used to smoke and I stopped or whatever. Smoking is also another an issue of addiction. But people often think it's kind of a willpower thing with opioids and not further fuels that stigma that people these people are weak unworthy of our time unworthy of our attention and he also played victim into that if you look a bit deeper his approach so he had this approach individual approach with his with his sister and the choice he made to be a part of the solution was on the war against drugs which is you know a microcosm of the larger problem of where we focus on Let's get the bad guys who distribute the stuff and maybe not so much focusing on the actual impact of those impacts. Yeah. So, I mean, they ended up killing the leader of that one specific syndicate, but that person's easily going to be taken over by whoever was his right man, like right hand man. And that's one of probably a million syndicates. Um, so it's almost seems like you, you pick one out and there's like 20 more to take their place, you know? So. You know, I completely agree. It needs to be almost tackled with who is being affected and how can we make sure that if they fall into drugs and opioid crisis and it affects them, how can we support them better? But yeah, I think overall with that movie, they just, I found that they really just tied everything up with a pretty bow. Like everything just very conveniently ended well for the three main characters, but they never showed that actual struggle. Like this struggle is going to keep going no matter whether this professor got a new job or whether that one syndicate person died, you know? Mm-hmm. I wish they dived deeper into Claire's story because she was someone who, you know, was facing addiction in the past. 
but they never really got deep into like how that happened and her story behind it. And I think going into showing that perspective of a person who uses drugs is really important when you're like, you know, kind of portraying it in the Hollywood um, scene. I think I think maybe diving deeper in her, into her story may have made the movie itself like less superficial and more like um, give, give given it more depth. I don't think they tied it up with a pretty bow necessarily. I think there were, you know, one one of the characters lost a lot and then at the end maybe didn't lose as much as the end of the day. Maybe they even gained more. The other two characters are left in a position of despair where like Jake committed his whole life to fighting this and the drug dealer person was killed. The problem still exists the next day. His sister still has an addiction to opioids. Claire, her mission didn't bring back her son and she killed the the drug dealer and it didn't make her feel any better. And throughout the movie, she was struggling. As you mentioned, she was a recovering. She used to have a, an addiction to opioids and it was someone in recovery. And throughout the movie, that was a constant struggle, like the trauma of her past and then the new trauma of her son. Is she going to go back to using that to cope with the pain. And so I think two people maybe clearly lost and then one person maybe stood where they were at the beginning of the movie. In terms of ratings, I think there was a lot going on in the movie. I would give it maybe a three and a half stars because I just think there should have been more a focus on maybe one storyline, develop that character a little bit. And I think they uh, they should have probably gone completely in the fictional direction. I think the true, sort of true, but not really true story thing was a little bit kind of flip floppy for me. So I didn't really like that. But yeah, that's my three and a half stars is what I would give it. I'd say the similar review. So I, I'd give it a three out of five. And I think obviously the story, the movie itself tried to tackle a very important issue but also complex issue i think there was a lot going on at once as you mentioned gordon it would have been nice if they went into just one aspect of this crisis and kind of focused deeper into it and the repercussions of it and possible even solutions of it i think that would have given a nice deeper dive into the opioid crisis itself and i felt like none of the storylines that were happening like they didn't really tell us anything new i felt like going being in 2022 like i feel like we're quite deep into the opioid crisis and i if they went into more of like, um, what do we do now? Like, what's next? That would have been nice to hear versus this has been happening for years. Um, I would have preferred that. Um, so I would give it a three out of five. Yeah, me too. Three out of five was kind of what I'd give the movie as well. Um, about the same as what you guys have said. I think they tried, like, the idea of it was a good intention and I think they still had like overall the movie gave a nice story and gives a lot to think about to the people who watch it but it would have been I think a lot more impactful and less surface level if they had picked one storyline and done an in-depth storytelling of that um, whether it was the big pharma one or whether it was specifically the syndicate and how illegal you know drug rings affect or exasperate things like the opioid epidemic so i completely i think we're all on the same page on that thing it was just it was a little too surface level for me but i think it was an important topic to tackle perhaps and maybe based off of the uh critiques or the feedback from this movie we see future films that perhaps you know go more in depth and show 
these struggles of people who are addicted to opioids or the more community level, like what can the public health approaches look like and stuff. But Shout out to Euphoria. I haven't right? watched that actually. <laughs> mm. Look, Euphoria, I mean, my wife watches it. It's a bit yeah. hectic though. Mm-hmm. It's a little too yeah. real. I think that yeah. that show definitely shows the stigma part of it well and kind of like what people are actually going mm. through when they are using drugs um, mm. versus like more of a sensationalized thing that this movie did, I feel. Yeah. yeah, I almost felt like the words at the end, like the little text about this is kind of how it turned out for these people. And this is where it kind of lands. And this is how many drugs we get on the market. Like it just felt too much like, here's what we're trying to tell you. What was the point of the movie? This is the points we're trying to make. It was like, it should have just come across in the movie, you know, yeah. rather than having to put it in text. That's a wrap up on Public Health Insights. Thoughts on Crisis, the movie. Let us know if you guys have watched it. If you have, what were your thoughts? If you haven't already, go give it a watch and come listen to this episode again. And tell us if you agree, disagree with what we have to say. And don't forget to give us some more suggestions on other movies that we can tackle next. This is Purva, Bindra, and Gordon signing off. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. See you in the next one.